You are now listening to the October 30th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners. This is Joseph McDonald. As Christians, there is something we must understand as our privilege and responsibility, and something that we must put into practice. This is forgiveness. Last time, we considered a phrase from the prayer that Jesus taught us, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We shared the conceptual connection between debt and forgiveness. We made an observation that when someone is indebted to us, we have the right to call out on that debt. We are expected to collect whatever deems equitable to the debt this individual owes us. We often call that our right to make things fair. We then considered forgiveness. We said forgiving means giving up that right and letting the other person be relieved from such obligations. Could we practice what we learned? This past week, have you given up such a right and released someone of an indebtedness? Or do you still think, I have no intention to forgive. I will never forgive. I hope you have not forgotten the lesson that Jesus taught us through his prayer. When Jesus said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, he is telling us to pray, God, please don't forgive me if I do not forgive others. Treat me the same as I treat others. We should be aware of how not forgiving someone will eventually affect our relationship with God. What would happen if we fail to forgive others when we know we must forgive them? Let us turn to Matthew chapter 18. There, we see Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus says that they must not neglect the small ones, those that are weak. Instead, they should look after them and keep them in safety. He tells them in the community of believers, they should not mistreat a brother even when he commits sin but rather counsel him carefully in private. If he does not listen, then take two or three people together as a group to counsel him. Jesus says that even if after two or three people come with to counsel this brother or sister, and they still will not listen, then the whole community of believers must put an effort to turn him back. Jesus promises that he will be there with them as they put their effort to turn that one soul back to God. Upon hearing this particular teaching about bringing a sinful brother back to the fold, Peter asks Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? At that time in the Jewish culture, it was customary for a righteous person to forgive another person who sinned against him three times. Notice here, Peter elevates that number from three to seven, talking about forgiving someone seven times over and above three times might seem a lofty statement. Perhaps Peter expected Jesus to commend him and say, yes, Peter, that would be very good. However, Jesus' answer was different from what Peter might have expected. Jesus took his teaching one step further. Matthew chapter 18, verse 22 reads, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven times. Peter must have been taken aback by Jesus' reply. Maybe not just Peter, but everyone else that heard it must have been surprised. They might have thought how that might be impossible. Then Jesus explained to them why a brother must forgive another brother countless times through a parable. It is a story of a person who owed 10,000 talents, as appears in Matthew chapter 18, verses 22 through 
verses 23 through 34. Please read it again on your own. But Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. The king is God, and slaves are God's children. God rewards the good ones, and he punishes the evil ones. That is how God will settle accounts with each of us. One slave owed the king 10,000 talents. To get the feel for how much 10,000 talents was, consider at that time a wage for one day's work was about one denarius. One talent is equal to about 6,000 denarii. That means to save one talent, one would have to work 6,000 days. That would be 16 years with no days off. And this slave owed 10,000 talents. Now, we start to realize how big that debt must have been. Specifically, This slave owed the king the amount that he must work for 160,000 years to pay back. 160,000 years. That would be impossible for one individual to pay back such a vast sum. So, the king ordered the slave to sell his wife, children, and all his belongings to repay his debt. The slave who owed 10,000 talents bowed down to the king and pleaded, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He was saying that he would pay back everything if the king would be patient and give him some time. Do you think the king believed what he heard? Do you think the king thought the slave would be able to pay back even if he gave him a lot of time? The king knew it was not possible for the slave to pay back such a large sum. Knowing that, the king felt compassion. In verse 27, the king released the slave from his obligation and forgave him the debt. If someone owes us a dollar and that person is not able to pay it back, we might be willing to forgive that debt. But what if someone owes us a hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars? Could we still forgive the debt? As the total sum increases, we would likely find it progressively more difficult to forgive that debt. How wealthy would one have to be to be able to forgive a debt that would require 160,000 years to pay back? We can only surmise that the person could forgive 10,000 talents must have had an astronomical amount of wealth, like several million or several billion talents. The king in this parable of Jesus is our God. God is that wealthy. He is not short on anything, and his wealth is limitless. That is why he can forgive 10,000 talents just like that, just because he felt compassion. The slave who owed this huge sum of 10,000 talents was forgiven not because he pleaded his case, but because the king felt compassion toward him. He was excused of the debt purely by the grace of the king. What would people who experience such grace feel in their hearts? What would be a normal behavior of a person who were given the same grace of being forgiven the debt that would have taken him 160,000 years to pay back, especially when considering the forgiveness came with no strings attached? Needless to say, he would be thankful maybe jump for joy and be eternally grateful. He would try to live as a righteous person for such grace. That should be what one would expect from a life of a person who experienced such grace. Next week, we will consider how this slave carried on with his life after receiving such grace from his king. Stay tuned. Forgiveness. We will continue next time. Where even angels fear to tread 
invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above. He pulls me close with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms. grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair I hear the voice that scatters fear Oh, the great I am the Lord is here oh praise the one who fights for me and shields my soul eternally
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Love Never Ends. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. The significant question we must answer together is how are we going to love one another? In this local church and among Christians and the broader church as a whole, And God is speaking a word loud and clear to any heart that is willing to hear. God is saying to us during these days, if if you speak in tongues like angels, but you don't have love for each other, you're just a noisy gong. If you prophesy with power, if you have faith that moves mountains, but you don't have love, you are nothing. You can give away everything you have. You can lose your life, but if you don't have love for others, it's worthless. Do we hear what God is saying to us? We are nothing. You see it twice. We are nothing in our lives without love for others no matter what we say or do. Now, it's not that those other things aren't good. Prophesying, speaking, faith, generously giving, laying down your life, those are all good things, but they're only good when they're done in the context of love, which is why when the Bible goes back to spiritual gifts at the beginning of chapter 14, verse one, notice the first two words. God says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Pursue love. And not love according to the world's definition of love or according to your or my definition of love. What you or I think or feel is loving. Let's be honest, we can all get caught up in thinking, what I'm doing is loving, what I'm posting is loving, the way I'm speaking is loving, Every single means may not be loving, but the end is loving. We need to stop and ask, is that what God says about love? And just think about what he says clearly after getting on the floor to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. If you have love like this for one another, what is is this kind of love? It's the kind of love that stoops to serve others in the most menial way imaginable. 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Love is covering a multitude of sins. Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love is outdoing others in honoring them. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse one and two, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Love is humbly, gently, patiently bearing with each other. One translation of this verse says, putting up with each other's faults. It's interesting, you come back to 1 Corinthians 13 here, I'm guessing individual Christians at Corinth would have said, I'm loving of course I am. But when you look at the way love, God describes love in verses four through seven here, you start to realize this is actually not just a random list of characteristics. This is a specific rebuke of a lack of love among the Christians at Corinth. We've seen this. They were being impatient and unkind toward each other, even in the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. They were filled with envy, For each other. We've seen language of boasting, being puffed up and proud in their own positions, or boasting in different leaders, dividing into different camps, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. 
taking each other to court, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, insisting on their own way, even if it caused others to stumble, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, tolerating wrongdoing, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God says, what you are doing is not love. Here's what real love looks like. If I could just be vulnerable, I had a whole other sermon written out to preach from this point. From this text, talking about all kinds of issues in the church. And I'd have, I could have slept a lot more last night if I'd have stuck with it. But something happened yesterday. Heather was out for a friend's birthday, so I had the kids, and we went to one of our local outreach festivals in a part of our city where there's a lot of crime and drugs and hurt and pain. I was out there sweating with brothers and sisters from this church family, people playing games, singing songs, sharing the gospel. One member of this church who's ethnically Chinese learned Spanish over COVID this last year by going to outreaches and sharing the gospel and has now led many people to faith in Christ in Spanish. And I thought, this is who we are. This is who the church is. And specifically in the city, this is who MBC is. People who love God with all our hearts and we love others like we've been loved by him. Like that's what I want to be a part of. And I think it's what we all want to be a part of. Yet we are living in a world and days where an adversary is, doesn't want that to happen, is trying to rip us apart in ways I trust we realize are not good for the reputation of Jesus or his church. What's happening is not good for us, not bringing glory to him before a watching world. And I've been wrestling in this week of prayer and fasting in my own heart, like, God, how am I contributing to this? It's been so humbling. And this week of fasting and praying through this text and other parts of God's word as his spirit has exposed areas of my life and leadership that are not loving as I've wrestled and agonized over how to shepherd and love you and glorify him in a world with so much tension in so many different directions. For one person, it's here. For another person, it's there. Another person, it's there. Like, God, how to shepherd in the middle of all of this. And last night, as I was praying after yesterday, I just sensed, as best as I can discern, God saying, Simply let my word and my spirit do my work in the hearts of my people. And that's why I want to do something a little different because I so want you to walk away from today saying, we did not hear from David, we heard from God. Like I want you to be able to say that every week regardless of who's, who's preaching, but especially on this day, especially during these days, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 together. That's what we're going to do. It's a few short verses, but I am believing that if we together could just stamp these words deep on our hearts, it would change everything. His word has power to do that kind of work. I'm believing that. So that's, that's what we're going to do. I want to lead us to memorize this. I'll offer a sh- few short words of explanation or application along the way, particularly as God has been applying this text to my heart in ways that I hope are helpful for your heart. And if you're not a Christian, we invite you to memorize with us. You can tell your friends. You've actually memorized part of the Bible. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to say a few words out loud. Then you repeat after me. I won't have them on the screen while we're reciting, and you can't look down. No cheating. That would not be loving. Loving, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. So, all right, here we go. You ready? First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. First three words, love is patient. So let's repeat that out loud with me. 
Love is patient. Say it one more time. Love is patient. All right, we're off to a good start. Patient. Patient. Let's just kind of take this step by step. Love is patient. Love doesn't jump to conclusions or assumptions. It's not quick to accuse. Love doesn't, love doesn't pop off on text or email, social media, or in person. Love is patient with each other and kind to each other. Let's say that with me. Love is patient and kind. One more time. Love is patient and kind. Let's just let that soak in. Are our words to others always kind? Maybe a deeper question. Are our words about others always kind? Do we assume the best about others? Or do we assume the worst about them? For those of you who were here on Friday night in our time of repenting and praying, Mike apologized for an unhelpful, hurtful phrase that he had used in an interview a year ago that popped up on social media this week. And I know he'll explain more at some point. And I appreciated his humility. But I also grieved over how he had shared that phrase in the context of honestly expressing his own hurts and struggles And that social media post this week had totally ignored that and immediately assumed the absolute worst about Mike. I know I don't like my words being taken out of context. And I know I've taken others' words out of context. God, help us to be kind with our words, our thoughts, even that which no one else sees but God. To believe the best, not the worst, about others. And to look for opportunities to give a kind word to others or about others. Wouldn't this alone change everything? If we just did this? Like, don't ever underestimate the value of a kind word. I think about Jimmy Mitchell, who many of you know served as an elder in this church for decades and led this church through tumultuous trying times in the past alongside Lon. I think Jimmy has been the single most encouraging person to me since I came here. And he's done it primarily through timely, short, kind words. Especially through the last year, up to the last week, saying, hang in there. The path is hard. I'm holding you up in prayer. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Keep leading this church. That's what he always ends with. Keep leading. Jimmy has no idea how his simple, kind words have served my heart. And I submit you have no idea how a simple, kind word to or about someone else will serve their heart so well. God is telling us that love is patient and kind. And this next part, love does not envy or boast. So we're adding envy and boast. So let's say that together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. One more time. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. You see how pride is at the core of both of those? Envying what you don't have, boasting in what you do have. We're starting to see that the opposite of love, according to God, is not hate. It's pride. A prideful preoccupation with ourselves rearing its ugly head in envy, in boasting, in arrogance. That's what comes next. It is not arrogant or rude. Let's just say that part together. 
It is not arrogant or rude. One more time. It is not arrogant or rude. Let's try to put it all together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. You are killing it. And that's a good thing for those who don't get that slang. <laughs> not arrogant, not concerned about what's best for us and not for others, and not rude. Doesn't lack concern for others in what we say and do. If someone's rude, like they, they were not thinking at all about anybody but themselves, the way that would hurt or. I've been convicted in my own life and leadership this week that a lack of listening to others is a picture of being rude. It shows a lack of love for others. And love is not arrogant or rude. Now the next part. It does not insist on its own way. Say that with me. It does not insist on its own way. One more time. It does not insist on its own way. All together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. All right, hang with me, hang with me. What a, what a line. In a year where we have all had and have opinions, even convictions about what should or should not be said or done in all kinds of spheres, including the church, for God to say love does not insist on its own way. Like whose marriage in this gathering could survive if both spouses insisted on their own ways? You just try that this week and report how it goes. The church can't survive that way either. God help each of us not to insist on our own way. And God help us not to be irritable when things don't go our way. That's what's next in this text. It's not irritable or resentful. Let's say just that part. It is not irritable or resentful. One more time. It is not irritable or resentful. You wanna try it all? All right, here we go. It was like a weak yes. So here we go, you got this, you got this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. <laughs> so great. Just watching something like, yeah. <laughs> You're doing good. You're doing good. It's not irritable or resentful. Many translations say, love keeps no record of wrongs or offenses. Love isn't ready to always bring up all the things someone has done to build a case against them. No, on the contrary, verse six, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Let me say that again, then we'll say it together. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. All right. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You feel the contrast. We'll say it one more time. Just doesn't rejoice in this, but does rejoice in this. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Do you ever rejoice at wrongdoing? I'm guessing most of us at first glance at least would say, no, no way. But I want you to think for a moment about someone you really don't like. Maybe somebody you know really well. Maybe somebody you only know from a distance. Maybe somebody in your home or the church 
maybe in your office, maybe the President of the United States, anybody, or maybe somebody who is deeply offended or hurt you, are you prone to experience any, any kind of pleasure if that person fails? When that person fails, are you prone to think, oh, it serves them right? And you have this rising up in you a bit of pleasure in their wrongdoing. Or maybe more subtle, are you prone to project or promote a wrongful image of someone else? Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but in contrast, rejoices with the truth, like has joy over truth. Oh, so much could be said here in a world where everybody has, seems to have different perspectives on truth. And it feels so confusing to so many. And I would just encourage us, brothers and sisters, not to take our source of truth as social media or blogs. It's not where we go for truth. It's worthy of joy before God. During these days, we've tried to communicate truth amidst so much disinformation with no desire or motive before God or before you to lie in any way, yet it sometimes feels futile in days when people are so quick to spread that which is not true or to question that which is. God, help us to take the time, not to stop with what we hear from this or that source, but to actually take the time to seek out that which is true. I think about meetings this week with people who have been willing to take the time to sit together around a table and ask questions about this or that and walk away saying, what's all the fuss then? This is actually really good. Or maybe to get to the end of a conversation and you don't maybe see 100% eye to eye, but you don't walk away questioning or even defaming each other's character. Like truth is worth the time. It is that valuable. And love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love takes the time to treasure and rejoice with the truth. All right. Look at verses four through six. We're about to say them all together. You see it? You got it hidden in your heart, your mind? Let's try it. Here we go. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Well done, well done. And even if you're like struggling a little bit, it's, you're still doing awesome, it's great. Now, here's the last verse, it's four phrases, and almost all the same though, except for one word change. So here we go, let's just read it together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You got it? It's four words, really. Bears, believes, hopes, endures. BB he, right? <laughs> Just in case you didn't get that. I, I'm guessing you get it. Like B B H E. BB he. So let's, let's, let's say it together. Just this verse. We'll just say this verse together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You used BB He, didn't you? That was helpful. It's helpful. What a, what a picture here. Love bears with others. Like if we don't have people in our lives we are bearing with, we are not biblically loving. Believes all things. Believing in each other. Believing God for each other. 
hoping continually for the best in each other and enduring through trials together. What a powerful depiction of love. But the bigger question far beyond this day is how are we going to love one another in this church? And in the broader church, among Christians and churches, through online attacks and videos and blogs and all sorts of other worldly avenues? Or are we going to love one another as God is telling us to love one another in the church in a way that is totally counter to the ways of this world? Oh, church, the ways and the tactics of this world are not our ways. Let us be finished and done with them. They only harm the reputation of Jesus. They hurt the bride for which he died, including members of that bride, and they keep us together from the work to which he has called us. It's not who we are. You want to know who we are? Picture all of us locked arms standing together in this city amidst all kinds of needs around us. Five million people in need of the gospel. Many of them, little children, like I was around yesterday, surrounded by so much hurt and pain, and we're working together. We're sweating. We're working with all of our hearts to love God with everything we have and to love others like he has loved us. That's who we are. And... And if you are visiting today, especially if you're exploring Christianity, I want to hone in on that last phrase, like God has loved us. I have the greatest news in the world today for you. Though you have sinned against God, as I have, as we all have, and we deserve eternal judgment before God, the greatest news in the world is that God loves you. God, the God who created the world, whom you have sinned against, God is patient toward you. God is kind to you. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that no matter who you are, no matter what your past has, when you believe in Jesus, he will forgive you of all of your sins and give you eternal life with him. You will never perish but have everlasting life. The God of the universe will keep no record of wrongs for all who trust in his love. Amen. So I urge you today, trust in his love. And when you do, and for all who have, you are awakened to a whole new way to love that is totally different from the ways of this world. And what does that love look like? Well, let's try to say it together before God. Just do your best. What is God saying to us? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Bring it home. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the word of God. And, and just in case you want a little extra, the very next verse, first three words, love never ends. Love like this lasts 
forever.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time from The God of Abraham, we saw how Hagar and Ishmael were driven out of Abraham's house because Ishmael, the son of the flesh, mocked Isaac, the promised son. From a human's perspective, we may think that was too extreme, but if we see this with our spiritual eyes, it was the right thing. This made us clearly realize that through the flesh, we cannot receive God's inheritance. We must remember this and stop approaching God by our own righteousness. We must only follow His promise by obeying His word and walk with the Lord in His grace. Today, we'll look at the remaining part of Genesis chapter 21. Here are verses 22 through 31. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard it about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven new lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of the seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, has appeared again. He appeared right before Sarah was pregnant with Isaac. Now Isaac is weaned, and this is after Ishmael left, so about four to six years have passed. Also, a special person named Phicol, who was the commander of the forces, has appeared. I explained this last time Abimelech appeared, but Abimelech was not a name, but rather a term used to refer to the king of the region. In the same way, Phicol was not his name, but the title given to the commander leading Abimelech's army. This scene is very symbolic and important. It's because this scene repeats again later after Isaac grows up. We shouldn't simply read this part quickly and move on. We must picture this part in our mind while reading and think about it. Let's think about what we learned about until now. After Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, Abraham came to the land of Gerar and settled there. If a few hundred people suddenly came to our town and set up camp to live, we can imagine how burdensome that may be. For that reason, Abimelech took Sarah with a clear conscience and clean hands for a political marriage. However, God appeared and gave him a warning and brought a curse upon the household. Although Abraham is the one who had lied, the harm was done to Abimelech's household. Through Abraham's prayer and blessing, the curse on Abimelech's household was lifted. Abimelech's household was probably amazed. Now a few years have passed. Abimelech sees Abraham as an extraordinary person and amazing miracles continue to happen in Abraham's household. Therefore, Abimelech came to Abraham. What was the reason? He came to make a peace treaty with Abraham. Furthermore, Abimelech brought his army commander and made a request. Let's make a peace treaty and not fight since we have never fought before. He came first to make the request. Let's think about it. Abimelech and Phicol probably had guards, officials, and servants following them. 
A person with such strength and power first approached Abraham. Then Abimelech said, God is with you in everything you do. What does he mean? In Abimelech's view, whatever Abraham does, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, God was taking care of Abraham and helping him. So Abimelech said, Now swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Last time, you dealt falsely with me and nearly ruined my household. Therefore, swear before your God. I have treated you well, haven't I? This is how he made the request. This is very amusing. The king went to a wanderer's house and pleaded with him to be kind to him. When a king brings an army to say something, it may seem like a threat. However, in this case, it is the complete opposite. Therefore, this is an important scene. The world cannot touch a child of God. The world cannot handle a child of God. If God is with us, who can dare go against us? 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. This means Jesus Christ, who was born of God, keeps his people safe so the evil one cannot harm them. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When Abimelech requested a peace treaty, Abraham accepted it. Abraham had no reason to refuse since a person with more power than him first came to make peace. It is amusing how Abraham made a peace treaty and also told Abimelech something that disappointed him. He rebuked Abimelech for taking the well of water away. Abraham's faith towards God has become firm, so he's not afraid of anything. We are the same way. When we are filled with the thought that God is with us and God is walking with us, then we are not afraid of the world. We don't have to live in servility. We can see a great change in Abraham who used to live in servility. After making a peace treaty, Abraham gave cattle and sheep to Abimelech. Then he also prepared seven new lambs. This is how Abraham replied. King Abimelech, your servants have been taking my well of water, but I will no longer discuss it. I will not make it into a problem. Instead, since I dug the wells here in the land I live in, Please acknowledge that these are mine, so your servants will never again take it. Abimelech accepted the promise and named that place Beersheba. Beersheba means seven wells or well of the oath. Now, in Genesis chapter 21, let's read verses 32 to 34. After the treaty had been made in Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of its forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. The first meaning of Abraham planting a tree was to remember the peace treaty he made with Abimelech. For the second meaning, scholars say this means Abraham will settle at that place. Abraham wouldn't plant a tree and just move somewhere else. If he planted a tree with the symbolic meaning, then every time he looked at the tree, he would think of the symbolic meaning. Abraham planted the tree and called on the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. In Hebrew, Eternal God is El Olam. We also say Everlasting God. This means God transcends time and never changes. More than simply saying God is eternal, it means God is not hindered by time. Also, it means the unknown. Since God transcends time, we who live in limited time cannot understand God. After Abraham made a treaty with Abimelech, he planted a tree called God El Olam. If we think about the situation and think about the meaning of that name, then we could find the closest meaning. Let's look at what happened most recently. Abraham had a son at the age of 100. Then the son was weaned. 
Abimelech came to Beersheba and lawfully acknowledged Abraham living there by receiving seven new lambs and cattle and sheep. It was an official acknowledgement. Afterwards, Abraham planted a tree. What does this all mean? Abraham gained a child and he gained land. In other words, God's covenant was fulfilled. At first, Abraham thought this would be fulfilled right away. However, 25 years have passed. Even though 25 years have passed, God's promise was fulfilled just as he promised. A miracle has happened. A child was born at the age of 100, and a king first came to make a peace treaty. Abraham experienced this and confessed that he cannot know God with his shallow knowledge and that God transcends our limited time. God is not hindered by time. If we experience God more deeply, then we don't have to live so impatiently in this world. I hope we could also experience the eternal God who is not hindered by time, but transcends time so our faith will become more firm. We have ended Genesis chapter 21. Next week, we'll look into the well-known Genesis chapter 22. I hope your faith will grow in the Lord during the week. Well, and God of Abraham. Goodbye. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears All nature sings and round me rings The music of the spheres This is my Father's world I rest me in the thought Of rocks and trees, of skies and seas and the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my Father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget That though the wrong seems oft so strong God is the ruler yet This is my Father's world The battle is not done Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven be one. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.